We are, of course, in John chapter 17 today, and this prayer that Jesus prays, as the title says, I would argue that you could say that this is the most important prayer in all of Scripture. Now, there's a few reasons why I say this. One, I mean, obviously, it's prayed by Jesus, and so a prayer prayed by Jesus automatically deserves to be at least considered to be one of the greatest prayers in Scripture, maybe, or I would even say greatest prayers ever prayed in the history of mankind. And another reason why this prayer is so important is that it had implications back then, and this prayer still has implications today. This prayer that he has prayed is still being answered. It's still at work with us. What you're going to notice, we're going to cover this over the next three weeks. We're going to take it slowly. We're going to go in depth in what he prays, why he prays. And this prayer has really three parts to it. Verses one through five, it's Jesus. He prays for himself. Verses six through 19, Jesus, he prays specifically for the 11 that are present with him. And then verses 20 through 26, he prays for those who will believe in him because of the testimony of his disciples. So, This being said, as I recite this attempt to, I'm going to have the Bible here just in case I stall out, but as I recite this, I want you to imagine, again, the setting, uh, the context of chapters 13 through 17. Jesus is, of course, having Passover with his disciples. He gives a farewell speech, essentially, uh, and just keep in mind this intimate setting around table as he prays this prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you, for I've given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you and have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I've kept them in your name. I've guarded them, and not one has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world." I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, for they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent to them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. And I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are me and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, that the world may know that you've sent me and love them even as you loved me. 
Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me, given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Whew, yeah, man. I'm I'm surprised that I actually got through that, to be honest. No, 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 no clapping, please. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so that's that's the prayer. Um, and I, I don't regret that it's been constantly running through my mind. Um, the more I read it, the more I was affected by it, I guess I would put it that way. Um, because sometimes when you just do a surface-level reading of Scripture, the, the, the words don't really hit you. Um, they don't really dwell in your heart. Uh, you miss the depth, you miss the meaning, you miss the relevance. And I'm not saying that everybody's got to memorize big old passages of Scripture. Um, this is just something that I wanted to do, but I don't regret it, and my goodness, uh, there might be a few points where I might start crying in the sermon because to, to me, when I read Jesus' words here, these are very, very important. Right? And so that being said, verse 1, just the first half of verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. These words, of course, being what we have in mind, chapters 13 through 16, right? And just most immediately, he's talked about, you know, how that he's going to leave. He's established a connection that they did not previously had with the Father. They can address the Father directly. So those are some of the most immediate things that he's talked about. But what does it mean to say that he lifted up his eyes to heaven? Right? What does that mean? Because maybe in your mind you're thinking, that's not how we pray, Jesus. <laughs> when we pray, what we do is we, we close our eyes, we bow our head, and that's how we pray. We don't, we don't look up. That's how we pray. Now, there may be a number of reasons for this, but in Scripture, to, to lift one's eyes up to heaven, which is exactly what it sounds like, to, to look up, uh, that, that was a normal posture of prayer, such as Psalm chapter 123, verse 1. Psalm 123, verse 1 to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. And we also read in Mark chapter 7, verse 34, when Jesus he's spits them or makes mud and puts it on this guy's eye to restore his sight. And he says, or the text says, And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Apaphatha, that is, be opened. Right? So in Scripture, it's a normal posture of prayer to lift up one's eyes to heaven and pray to God. I think the general idea is that he's, he's surpassing this fallen physical world. He's far beyond where we dwell, and yet he is close, as we know, Jesus coming down in the flesh. But that's not the only posture of prayer we see in Scripture. We also see in Luke chapter 18, verse 13. Of course, the tax collector, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so often I think this is really the, the, the posture we tend to take. I think that's in large part why, why we so often when we pray, we, we, we put our head down, we look at the, we close our, we don't even look at the ground, we close our eyes and I think it's in large part because we feel so much shame. 
We feel so much shame. And unfortunately, I think we too often take that posture. It's not that there's never a place for that. It's not that there's never a place for us to fall flat on our face because we are just so overwhelmed with how holy God is and how sinful we are. There's certainly a place for that. But I don't know why we always pray like that. I'm just looking at how Jesus prays here, him looking up. I think in part it's because he has confidence in what the Father is doing through him. And so I absolutely believe that maybe sometimes we just got to lift our eyes up to heaven because we're confident in what God the Father is doing. We continue, second half of verse 1. Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Of course, it's the the glorification, this hour that we've been talking about, the hour of his crucifixion is his glorification, the hour of his resurrection is his glorification, and even the hour of his ascension is his glorification. Now, one thing that we must understand, when Jesus here, he asked the Father to glorify him, it's not some ego trip. Jesus does not understand glory as we understand glory. For Jesus, his glory is seen on a cross. His glory is seen in suffering. So when Jesus asks the Father to glorify him, it's not some selfishly motivated request for glory. Because as we know, people, us, mankind, when we seek glory, we tend to try and grasp it, grab a hold of as much glory as we can at the expense of others. We see this so often in our society. But not for Jesus. Jesus does not ask for glory for some sort of selfish motive. And notice why he asked for this glory. He says in the text, that the Son may glorify you. So Jesus, he asked the Father to glorify him so that he, in turn, could glorify the Father. I would describe them, and I think in Scripture you see that the Father and the Son are perfectly reciprocating glorification. Neither the Father wants to receive glory at the expense of the Son, and the Son does not want to receive glory at the expense of the Father. They, they mutually give each other glory. One is not selfish. They're both self-giving to each other. How has the Father glorified the Son? Well, verse 2, the first half of verse 2 says, Since you have given him authority over all flesh. Since, that word there could be translated as just as you have given him authority over all flesh. So again, taking this slowly, the text said, Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since or just as you have given him authority over all flesh. Essentially, the Father has glorified the Son by giving him authority over all flesh. Jesus has that glory because he's been given authority over everyone. There's not a single soul, there's not a single person who has ever existed and who will come into existence that is not under the authority of Christ. So the Father glorifies Jesus by giving him that kind of authority. And Jesus even tells us why the Father gives him that authority. second half of verse 2, I'll read the whole verse. Since you have given him authority over all flesh... To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. 
So the Father gave Jesus authority over all flesh. Why? In part to give eternal life to all that the Father has given him. Now you may wonder, well, who are these people that have been given to Jesus? Again, I encourage you, read chapters 13 through 16. Read it, read it, read it. You'll see in those chapters and explains really who those people are. Right, some of the questions that really have been answered that I think answer this question. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Are you keeping his commandments? Are you cleansed by Jesus? Are you dwelling in the vine? Are you abiding in the vine? Are you indwelled by the Holy Spirit? Are you growing in his love? Are you loving as he has loved? Those questions answer that question. Who are these people that Jesus gives eternal life? Chapters 13 through 16 answer that question. And pay very close attention to the second half of verse 2. The wording is very important. He says, to give, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Those first two words are very important to give. Jesus gives. Right? Eternal life is not something taken. Eternal life is not something taken, it's given. Eternal life is not something earned, it's received. Again, the wording in this text is so very intentional. When we read that Jesus gives eternal life, it's not that we have earned it. It's that we've received it from him. And now usually when people think about eternal life, what they usually have in mind first is, okay, the living forever part. Uh, Eternal life is living forever in perfect bliss away from all my troubles. Now, what if I told you, what if I told you that that is not the main focus? That's not primarily what eternal life is about. What if Jesus told you that? Oh, he does in verse 3, actually. Verse 3, he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So when we think about eternal life, the primary focus is knowing God and Jesus Christ. And again, the way Jesus words this is just so profound. He does not say, and this is eternal life, being completely satisfied, though that's part of it, as we know. He doesn't say, this is eternal life, that you live forever without any pain, though we know that's part of it. He says that eternal life is knowing the Father and knowing me. And you know why that's the main focus, why that's most important? It's because without knowing God, without knowing Jesus, you don't have eternal life. So when we think about eternal life, don't don't first think about living forever. Don't first think about the benefits that you will receive in eternal life. That means nothing. You shouldn't even consider yourself or consider eternal life without first thinking about, do I know God? Do I know Jesus? 
I think sometimes when, when we think about eternal life, we just get so caught up in, all right, what benefits will I receive when that comes? What reward will I have? We focus on the reward. We focus on what, what benefit we've got. We focus on our well-being. We focus on our satisfaction rather than knowing God. The main focus is knowing God. The main focus is knowing Christ. He continues in verse 4. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Right? So the Father, he's, he's glorified Jesus by giving him authority, by giving him a people. And Jesus glorifies the Father by accomplishing everything that the Father gave him to do. Right? So everything that Jesus has been doing on earth Everything, every single thing that he did, not a single thing, not a single healing, not a single action was not to glorify God. Everything he did was to glorify God. In verse 5 here, he sort of concludes this thought. He says, and now, Father, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Before the world existed. Again, the Greek word there being cosmos for world. Of course, we get our word cosmos from comes from this Greek word. And in this case, it seems to be in reference to everything. Before all of creation existed, before all material existed, the Father and the Son had the same glory. Now, how can the Father and the Son have the same glory if they are not both God? They have the same glory because they are God. And recently in Genesis that we've read, Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. As we discussed, the, the noun there for God is Elohim, which is plural, and the verb for create is singular. A plural noun taking a singular verb. Jesus, the Son, and the Father, they are God. And again, read verse 5 with me. I really want to take this slow and dissect it. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had, the glory that I had with you before the world existed, right? Noticing how he words that, the glory I had. He's sitting there around table with them, and that's in the past tense. Before I came on earth, I had this glory, the same glory that the Father has. And so it's so astonishing that Jesus, being in that kind of position, Gave up glory. Gave up the same glory that the Father had to to come down on earth to accomplish all he accomplished. As Hebrews 2 verse 9 says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, Namely, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let me put it this way. Mankind sought the place of God and lost their place with God. 
God sought the place of man so that mankind could once again be with God. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as I consider Jesus' prayer in John 17, as we consider this prayer, and the way in which he prays for his 11 disciples with him around table, but then he also takes the time to pray for those who will believe in him through their word. And I can't help but wonder, was Jesus thinking of each and every one of us? Was Jesus praying for me? Was Jesus praying for each of the members here sitting? Did he have us in mind as he prayed that we would be one? Lord, that we would be his people. That we would know you that we would have eternal life, which is to know the Father and know you. I just, I, I just can't really contemplate fully the, the, the love, the intentional love of Jesus leading up to his suffering death on a cross. He has the composure, the will, the desire to pray for us. Lord, we are thankful that he, you've had us in mind. We're thankful that you guard us. We're thankful that we've received your spirit that sanctifies us, that connects us to you, connects us to Jesus. Lord, may we Pray like Jesus prayed with, with such intentional love. May we be affected by this prayer. May we look to you always. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you haven't already, you can respond as we stand and sing. Uh.